Good afternoon, everyone. Well, it's afternoon where I'm sitting in a rather chilly uh, London, uh, although it's now March and I don't think we've seen any uh, much sun this month as we as we normally do. Um, my name is David Bellingham. I'm Programme Director of the Master's Degree in Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art. And this is my podcast uh, called The Art Business. Um, my guest today, very exciting guest today, we've got um, Sebastian Duthi, who's the CEO of uh, a web-based platform for art market data analysis um, called AMR, or Art Market Research. And um, guesting with Sebastian is Veronica Lukasheva, uh, who works with him as a researcher and senior analyst. So welcome, um, Veronica and Sebastian. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. <laughs> right. So I'm going to dive straight in, as I usually do, um, by I think I think listeners just like to know a little bit about a little bit more about you and your interests, as it were. Um, so I'm going to start by asking Veronica, do you have a favourite city, Veronica? And could you give your reasons for your choice? I love Prague, <laughs> which, you know, uh, I'm not trying to be sort of nepotic here, but I am Czech and I did not grow up in Prague. But for me, Prague has always been really magical city and still is now. And um, it's got a very rich history. Uh, lots of books I read over the you know, past 40 years are based in Prague. So for me, that's um, still a fascinating city that I'll have to go to. I'm afraid, I'm ashamed to say it's a place that is on my list and I haven't been to, and it's literally just time, you know, but mm -hmm. it's definitely a place I'd like to go to. It sounds very, very beautiful and uh, a little bit different from maybe what I'm used to, the, the kind of Italian tradition and so on. Like, mm -hmm. um, And and um, Sebastian, do you have a, is yours Prague as well? <laughs> I, I'd say I love London. I was born here. Uh, I grew up in Islington. Uh, I have many, many good memories of London, particularly in August. I always love London in August. Something about the fact that people aren't working so much and there's a more relaxed atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, I would say that. And, and, you know, I spent most of my time in North London. So I love the Heath. I'd go up there a lot with friends. Um, and also growing up in London, we, uh, yeah, yeah, we just sort of were on foot a lot of the time or on bikes. So, yeah, so that's my sort of fondest memories, really. And would you say that London has changed um, in the new millennium from what it was before, you know, before the new millennium? Well, I tell you what, with the, I mean, everyone... Everyone had a different experience of the, the lockdown and the pandemic. But one thing that I noticed, because we live in central London, uh, and so I go out here. I'm not far from where I was born, actually. Uh, and the quietness on the streets was very similar to, to, to London when I grew up in the, in the 80s. And so that was very reminiscent. But it's changed dramatically, uh, you know, hugely. I mean, I think it's it's much more multicultural than even when I was young and it was multicultural then. But so, yeah, it's just become richer and and I love it just as much. I mean, I just love the, uh, I suppose, the politeness of London, the kind of the, the sort of genteelness. And I think that's what people love about it, too. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and I, I, I what surprises me is that I kind of like it more now than I ever have done. I, I think a lot happened in the 90s in the in the cultural 
and socio political world that that made some you know the opening of Tate I always see as a sort of um, moment uh, on the for the new millennium the new tech the new Tate uh, modern and Tate I went I actually took my students there on the first opening day I remember seeing the Louis Bourgeois spider and thinking how fantastically site specific it was in a in a in a place that had been you know an industrial building had been abandoned for decades and I think since then. A lot of what has happened to London is this great excitement and love of contemporary art and culture, which definitely wasn't there, I think. I think would you agree in the 80s and 90s? I think art and contemporary art was seen as something like piles of bricks. And, uh, you know, it, I think it was seen as something quite not necessarily elitist, but difficult. And I think since the kind of new pop artists of the world like Hearst and Emin and co have come along and Rachel White reads. I think it's much more exciting. I think it's made the whole city more exciting. So it's really, really sad to see all of these recent kind of cuts, I think, to the arts. Uh, you know, I, th I think that I can understand perhaps why reasons why they're doing that and cutting London arts and putting them into the north. But it, I think a lot of people come and live in London, choose to live in London or work in London or put their, you know, financial services in London, partly because of that cultural backdrop, even if they don't go to it. People tend to say to me, I, mm, I don't really have time to go to galleries, but if they weren't there, it would make London a duller place. <laughs> well, I totally agree with the, mm -hmm. I mean, I remember going to Sensation at the Royal Academy. Yes. And I remember it just changed everything in terms of the atmosphere. It, art suddenly belonged to a younger generation. We could mm -hmm. all sort of feel connected in some way. Certainly, um, uh, yeah, growing up in London, I felt definitely connected with that exhibition, what was going on. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, it was very exciting. Definitely. Yeah, and I, I think it, I remember it being dirty. I, in terms of, I think the cleaning services have much improved in the in the in the late nineties and new millennium. It used, you know, you, I have this, I have this kind of memory of it being quite, quite um, drab, and you know, I'm, I'm, it was still exciting. But I think I, put, I all I'm trying to say is I think it's improved. Um, you talked about living living in North London and having access to the heath, um, which is kind of like nature in the countryside in the city, really. But Veronica, do you do you like the, being outside of the city, or are you a kind of like a city woman, or, or or are there any kind of rural locations you like? Oh yeah, um, I love the woods. I love the forests. That's how I spent a lot of my childhood. So I have this draw to keep going to you know nature and obviously Hampstead Heath is the uh, the closest thing to it and actually Kew Botanical Gardens as well so we go there a lot mm. but I'd say the, the sort of the most fantastic place for natural beauty is the Sequoia National Forest mm. um, you know in western um, US and uh, yeah I had a chance to revisit last year last summer and it was it was beautiful and in a way, it's interesting uh, microcosm of how attitudes change. You know, we talk about how, you know, London changed. But in there, you see how, you know, back in the day, the, the trees were viewed purely as a sort of commercial kind of entity. Mm. And, uh, you know, and they were locked profusely without any concern about how many are there of them or how old are they. Nobody cared. Mm. And so... You know, now obviously there's conservation of, of the whole area, but you could still see there's these massive, you know, gigantic stumps with sort of um, staircase leading onto it. Yes. <laughs> and you can stand on it and you're like, oh my God, you know, it, it seems so brutal. So 
sort of unbelievable that somebody's done that because you know mm. from from a filter of our time 21st century like this is this is just unbelievable but um i just love um i love the notion of deep time and i think when you when you stand in the middle of a forest full of full of giants that are you know thousand two thousand three thousand years old it's really humbling you know and, and and you think about you know what has our society done in that time since these little seedlings you know came into these big trees it's quite humbling isn't it quite humbling yeah it's quite interesting actually because i sometimes get on the train with my dog to take her on the overground to Hampstead Heath to walk her and I'm at Kew Gardens and it sounds as though you 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 and you you are coming this way to go to the the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew which I live literally 10 minutes away from so I'm in there, quite a lot. there. <laughs> the only problem is you can't take the dog in there so I feel really guilty if I you know to go there without her and she kind of gives me this look <laughs> I said, I'm going to go to the gardens. I'm just going to go look at the bluebells. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I think you're right. I think what you're saying is that kind of almost like any woodland is a place to be. And, you know, we feel humbled by the age of, I was looking at a tree in the gardens of Chiswick House um, the other day, and it was 200 years old, a uh, big cedar tree. And um, the, the Richmond Park has some very old oak trees. Also, I don't know whether you've been watching the David Attenborough series called Wild, I think it's either Wild Island or Wild Britain. At last, he's actually decided, you know, there's a lot of nature nearer home. And it's just, it's a beautiful programme. And he's talking about the percentage of the, the woodland that has disappeared. It's massive. You know, we're talking 90% in some places. Um, and I, I always wonder whether to watch a David Attenborough programme because it's quite depressing and it always has like animals sort of attacking and feeding on one another. But it's really, I, I would, you know, listeners, if they can have a look at that, it's really nice introduction to the British Isles. There's something very small scale about Britain compared to other places I've been to, which I like miniaturist, which I, which I find very moving. You know, everything is a little bit smaller. So the orchids aren't spectacular, but they're, they're beautiful yeah. sort of in miniature. Likewise, our Lake District mountains, you know, they're they're not particularly high compared to mountains elsewhere in the world, but relatively speaking, they're incredibly beautiful and quite awe-inspiring, you know. And Sebastian, do you do you have a particular rural location that you think of? Uh, well, I had to think about it. I mean, I know that you were, I knew that you were going to ask me that because <laughs> I actually had to think about that. I, I spent so much time in London, but I've also fortunate enough to have. I spent time making films uh, and a recent series a few years back we made a film about islands for the BBC and so we went to uh, we went some uh, lots of places Madagascar and Madeira but my favorite my absolute favorite was Hawaii um, not for the surf and the and the shopping but the <laughs> just the extraordinary variety of those different islands. Um, and we were lucky enough to, to be taken around by the experts who we were interviewing and showing us around. And I mean, some of those old forests and some of the, you know, the early growth before the kind of introduction of the invasive species, you know, you can still find those and they are absolutely magical. Um, and then you can come out of a, a, a forest like that and you'll be up towards the, the volcanoes and then the temperature changes and it suddenly it feels like we're back in rural England in terms of climate, but also even the way it looks, you know, the kind of plants. So it's just an extraordinary range. I mean, it really was fantastic. 
That so that's something I talk about going back, definitely. Mm. Again, Hawaii somewhere. I haven't been to Sequoia. I haven't been to Hawaii. So they'll put these, start putting these on my list. And I, on, Attenborough talked about he was looking at some woodland in Cornwall, southwest England. And he was actually saying that they're actually rainforests. They're like miniature rainforests still down in Cornwall, on the, particularly on the edges of the moors, which is remarkable. Um, so music, are you... Do you care about music, Veronica, or is it just something you have in the background? Or <laughs> well, I, I actually my my original study, my MA was focused on musicology. Oh. So I'm a I'm a musicologist by degree, but I've never practiced musicology. You know, I never sort of pursued this particular direction. But but I always feel like it, it's given me a really really good base for everything else I do. So. I um when I was studying, I was completely immersed in sort of, you know, old masters of music, I should say, you know, Monteverdi, Pergolesi. And I I still listen, I love Pergolesi's Stabat Mater. That's one of my favorite sort of music pieces of all time. Mm. But um uh, but since then I, you know, I've I really love Phil Glass, some yep. sort of contemporary, you know, minimalist uh, musician. But I'm a bit of a magpie. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of different things, you know, that I just sort of pick and, and choose and create playlists. And um, But also lately, I listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. So that's, I think, probably more than music. Mm. Sounds not yeah. dissimilar to me, actually, because <laughs> I was listening to Philip Glass the other day. Um, went to see, um, went to the Royal Ballet to see uh, this thing about Virginia Woolf Wolf works and the music's by this guy called Max Richter. If you haven't heard of yeah. him, you can check him out. He because he's I like know. a slightly more commercial version of Philip Glass, I would say, like as a minimalist composer. I was going to mention him, and then you know, thought, <laughs> you thought no yeah, one would have heard of him. <laughs> yeah, no. So that's so yeah. Um, and uh, what was the last one you said after talking about Phil, Phil Glass? Did you mention? Uh... And I said I was sort of a magpie, you know. I've sort of yeah. I lived in the United States for a long time, and I yeah. and I really and embraced oh. sort of Motown and yeah, that yeah. whole culture. No, I know and, what you said. Then, you said. You said you've been listening to audiobooks, and that's another thing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I got so, for Christmas. Uh, I got Audible as a as a subscription. I love it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. I, right now, I'm listening to the. Um, Katie Hassel's book that came oh, out yes. last year. Yes, that's on, my, that's on my wish list. Women artists, it's fantastic. Yes, that's actually probably the next one I'm going to download. As you know, you can only download one a month and it's in my list. And what's nice about that, for example, I know you it gives you a PDF version, so you can actually have the written version as well as the... Um, mm -hmm. But obviously, I don't know whether there are any images <laughs> in the in the pdf version and it's kind of quite strange listening to someone actually referring to works of art it'd be quite interesting experience to see what it sounds like on audible i do have the actual book as well yeah so what i'm doing now i'm kind of listening to it and then i have it as a research sort of resource so i can use it you know when i'm making presentations and so forth so i can so i like sometimes i buy books in both formats just to sort of you know, listen to it first and then know maybe which areas I'm most interested in and go back to those. So Yeah, because you really need the text in order to quote yes. sites from it, yeah, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and yeah. and Sebastian, do you are you a music lover? I'm sure you are. <laughs> yeah, I love music. I love music. I mean, thinking of the minimalist, the the composer came to mind for me was Niels Fromm. 
you know Niels Fram? No, I don't know Niels Fram. Well, you know, he's amazing. And I saw him uh, two or three years back at the Barbican where he was on stage, mm. just a piano. And they had this fantastic set where he was kind of, they created a sort of a, a sort of pool of water. And then the, and a sort of bridge and the piano was in this pool of water. And it was just him with the piano. And it was just absolutely magic. It really mm. was. It was so memorable. But I music, yes, I love, but I gain all sorts of music, just good music, really. In the morning, I'll listen to Radio 3. In the afternoon, I'll be on Radio 6 music. Um, I mean, I grew up in London with, actually, with friends. We had a sound system like lots of people did, and we put on parties, and it was really when hip-hop was breaking and, um, you know, and sort of Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys. So we were very involved with that. Um, but also Talking Heads, you know, I absolutely love Talking Heads, still do today. I think they sound incredibly modern. Saw David Byrne not so long ago, absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I would say that that's the kind of music. And then also, I before I was uh, making television, I had a career uh, editing commercials and music videos. So mm -hmm. I worked a lot on music videos. And sometimes I hear a, a song. Last week I heard a song uh, that I had edited, and that's always fun because... When you're editing, you spend hours listening to the same piece over and over again. It becomes totally part of you. And so you can literally hear half a note and you are taken back to that time when you were doing it. So that's kind of fun, too. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So very mixed. I noticed um, you were showing a little bit of a video. Um, I don't know if it's on your website, uh, which explains how AMR works, your art market research works, but I noticed that it was very well edited. And I noticed there was a, this kind of ja kind of um, avant-garde jazz, maybe, is uh, the sort of playing along, yeah. along to it. <laughs> yeah. A little bit atonal. Well, yeah, I mean, I work with music a lot. I mean, in my career, I've always worked with music and, hmm. and really with documentary, it's become more now. It used to be where you would just find a piece of music for the documentary. Now editors are really working with the, with scoring, really. So the, the production music you get to use is given to you in different elements, what they call stems. And so you're literally working with different parts to kind of really score the, 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 the picture. Um, not like a proper composer because that's too big budget, but a lot of editors are working like that now. And it, it's part of the way now, really, you can't afford to lose people's attention. And so your sound and music is such an important part of filmmaking that uh, and I absolutely love doing that. Absolutely, yeah. And um, am I right in saying that, that that film, for example, because you've got a part, we'll talk about this in a bit more detail in a moment, but you've got a past in like editing um, films. So you did all that, you're, you do all that yourself. You don't have to farm that out. Yes, we can do that here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so that's part. And um, so, so now moving towards art, Veronica, do you have an, I usually ask people, do you have an early memory of, of when you suddenly realized there was such a thing as art? So um, my, my, my parents were both teachers. My, well, my, my, my mom at the elementary school, my dad at university. And I think they really cultivated a lot of curiosity and a lot of creativity in us, you know, in different directions. And it was clear early on that my sister is, you know, absolutely very talented. And she went on to go to art school and then, you know, art university and so forth. I was more of a journalist. I didn't have the sort of the draft skills. I had ideas, but I didn't have the draft skills. So... I remember, you know, making collages and, you know, when I was a teenager, writing a lot of poetry and, 
you know, I actually found some of it and it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Should publish it. <laughs> and uh, and um, so it was it was it was clear to me that I I was very you know I was I was finding my path to art, which then became you know with the help of sort of using a camera and taking photos. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I would say that yes, we've we've been exposed to a lot of things. My parents were, were not artists, um, but my grand grandma, grandpa, they were they were poet and the writers. So we had a lot of sort of different arts in the family. Sure. And I think it all sort of coalesced when I finished my degrees, moved to the United States, and basically decided I want to be a photographer. Actually, so. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, yeah. And, and um, I mean, I hate asking this question, but is there a period of art or a certain artist or, or, or an actual work that, that if, you, if someone puts a gun against your head or you have to take one work to a desert island, is there, is there any artist or period or, or work that particularly moves you or for whatever reason? I mean, I, I love old masters. And I'm not saying it because we do a podcast with you, David. <laughs> but I'm very, very drawn to old masters because to me, it's the way the light is uh, expressed in these paintings. And I think that's what them sets them apart. And I always, you know, it's very hard for us to sort of travel in time and imagine what the what the sort of circumstance and the social context was. You know, we can just read about it through sort of tell tales and stuff. But I feel like, you know, what, what I love about it is that it's natural light is what's what we see in the paintings. When we, you know, when when the, you know, when the then painting moved and, you know, medium developed and different light sources developed, you know, you could see that it's very different, you know, it's sort of more flat, you know, this and that outside. So uh so I love old masters for this sort of, you know, for the chiaroscuro and um, the themes and the way some of them are quite humorous as well you know if you really study the painting and I'd say one of my favorite paintings is the uh, the two ambassadors by Holbein (laughs) in the national yes because I'm very much drawn to um, science and sort of sort of interdisciplinary kind of approach to arts and I love the the fact that Holbein just decided to try this new kind of uh you know new trick to show viewers actually if you stand this side you can see the the skull you know uh you know in the right perspective but but I love how it's combined in this sort of painting of these sort of important ambassadors and and instead of making vanitas you know sort of in the corner perhaps you know he decides to do this way i think so. i think that painting actually in many ways it, it is one of the most remarkable works of art ever made i think because because as you say it's very unusual it's a double portrait it's very unusual format for holbein um but but also as you say it's just filled with uh, semiotic studies have been made of yeah. it it's filled with all of these yeah. tricks and visual tricks as as you say the anamorphic and, and then contemporary scientific documents uh, sorry yeah. uh, tools as no. well you know which is fantastic yeah so yeah it's tremendous actually it's very easy to yeah. kind of almost forget about it <laughs> but the, the listeners should go if you don't know it go to the national gallery and spend half an hour just looking at that painting it's quite quite remarkable very very contemporary and it's kind of yes. in a lot of what it's trying to say to you, I would say. 
yeah um, but your your intro your, what you're saying about lights i really quite i do get that because sometimes you see like contemporary and ultra contemporary painting it's very realistic but but there is something as you say it's almost there's something flat very often about it there aren't that many contemporary artists i look at who are as who are as interested and as good at light as at light particularly natural light as as the old master painters and i remember in the venice biennale a few years ago the the um one of the main things was light and they put Tintoretto's from the city of Venice, where of course he lived, in the middle of the Grand Pavilion. As a, you know, so it was very interesting that the keynote was struck not by a contemporary artist, but by an old master from Venice. And Sebastian, art, do you remember this thing? Did you grow up in an artist? Well, yes, I, I mean, yeah, in every direction I, I had art around me. I mean, the, this business that that I have now that was started by my father. And so, um, and it's, we researched the art market today, but he's been doing it, was doing it since the 1970s. So I grew up with large tomes with Christie's and Sotheby's on the side with their end of year results. And <laughs> and so I just had art all, all around me and he was passionate about art. So we spent our time, you know, being central London going and, and seeing things. Um, I, I, I studied at uh, I studied in central London. I went to school in central London and we had a fantastic art teacher called Kate Miller. And she used to take us to the National Gallery every week, mm. uh, twice a week sometimes, because it was just a walk up the road. And uh, and so I did I started history of art with her, but also art as well. And we used to go in and during the day you would have people regularly. They would set up their easels and they would copy the old masters. And, and so I sort of you know, I sort of had this around me, you know, growing up. And and I think when I look back, there was something lovely about the way we would go was because we would go to go and look at one work. So you didn't have the pressure of going, oh, right, I'm going to a museum or a gallery and I need to have a look and, and get the most out of this. It was just the sort of luxury of, of going along and just having a look at one thing. And and in fact, of course, that's not easy to do with museums being expensive now. But I mean, it, some are free. And if you're close, it's just a lovely way to, mm -hmm. to appreciate it. So I had that. So I was very interested in art. In fact, I, I was thinking of becoming an artist before I went into the film business. Uh, and that was a close run thing. And then um, but it, where I grew up in Islington, there were quite a lot of other people into um music videos things like that I actually grew up uh with um the well-known film director Joe Wright uh also um Adam Smith who did the uh, the visuals for the Chemical Brothers who are known for their visuals and they used to come in to me all the time so I I worked on all of their early early stuff and oh. many years the visuals for the Chemical Brothers and and that moved on and that was very experimental kind of uh filmmaking they they took their cue really from work that was done in the 60s that was done in sort of digital art, but that hadn't really been thought of again. And so they were really sort of pushing into new areas. So I was very involved with them in that. So, so yeah, so that, that evolved. Um, and then in the lockdown, I picked up my paintbrush again and, and got back into it in a, in a big way. Mm -hmm. And now I can't put it down. So, and one of the things I've been doing actually is sort of trying to, well, from that early experience of seeing people copy old masters, I've been working on a few myself as well, just mm -hmm. to just to really understand what it must have been like, you know. Mm. Um, so anyway, that's that's what I enjoy doing, certainly. 
and maybe segueing from that, um, I, you, you've spoken already about that you were involved in like films and documentaries, and um, yeah, I think I think one of the things you worked on was the, at the time anyway, uh, and I would say still very important, um, arguably the first history of art series on television that was aimed at the lay person, if I if I might say, Kenneth Clark's Civilization. He wrote a book about it. Uh, I think when people revisit it, it can be seen through a contemporary lens as quite controversial and a little bit patronising. But can you say something about your what you thought of, you know, what, just tell us a little bit about your experience of being involved with Kenneth Clark's Civilization. It's a BBC series about the history of Western I art. wasn't involved in that. I was involved in the, the, the more recent one, which was about... Because I was just a, I was, I even, I mean, okay. I may not look, but I, even I was just a small boy. When I was going to say, actually, so we, yeah. so you mean the... Civilizations was a, a series. That Civilizations, was by, I'm sorry, I stand yeah. corrected. Actually, but you're, but you're <laughs> not wrong in, in the sense, but it was, it, it was built as the sequel. So it was a huge budget production. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, um, it was, I, it was, it was ages and ages ago. So what a strange mistake. I just saw that and I thought, oh, Kenneth Clark, and you're in the art world. And I completely... Yeah, no, no, sure. Time travel. No, even I'm like... but, uh... I stand correct. No, so civilizations. So Civilizations yeah. was, I think, when was it? It's 2017, 2018. Is I this the one that had people like Mary Beard in it? And... Exactly. So it had Simon Sharma, Mary that's... Beard, and David yeah. Sega. Yeah. Uh, and I was... Um... Uh, an edit producer, which is like a sort of writer on the and a um, you know production on the actual show, and spent yes. about eight months making that show. So I spent time on all of the episodes, actually. Wow! Um, going back to Kenneth Clark's Civilization, with, without the S, they made a difference. <laughs> uh, he, I mean, that was a epic series. I mean, there were many, many programs. I mean, it was an exhaustive survey, really. Uh, of art and architecture. Mm. Um, when they remade it, yes, obviously, uh, I think looking back at the controversial nature of civilization meant that this time around, that had to be addressed. So that had to be part of the kind of the, the narrative, you know, to, to think about uh, shifts, changes, what's happened. Um, but they, what they kept consistent was that the episodes were very much personal stories. So Simon Sharma very much chose the art that he wanted to talk about. So did Mary Beard, uh, and so did David Olasoga. And and so you have very personal uh, stories in terms of you know what they're choosing and 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 what they care about. You know, so I thought two of the most interesting were Mary Beard's, which was one was called uh, How Do We Look? I think it was called, and it was really sort of taking off from the Berger idea of you know of, of how we see things and the male gaze and and yeah. so it was really from her perspective um, and thinking about that in in quite a modern way. She did another uh, one which was about religion, which was fascinating. Um, you know, very much to do with you know with with graven images, as it says in the Bible. You know, sort of uh, uh, and and there were some fascinating places that were visited to try and understand the narrative because I mean on the one hand in you know in the in the in the Islamic world you you can't obviously show the prophet uh, whereas if you go to India you know there's still a huge tradition of uh, of uh, manufacturing you know gods and and effigies and and so you know it was being able to juxtapose those I think it really you know brought home you know what's happening in the world around us right now 
Um, so it presumably, was not sorry, presumably the title Civilizations put the S, S on deliberately with a reference back to Kenneth Clark's Civilization without an S. It's as though Kenneth yeah, Clark said the, there's the, only one civilization, which is Western. I seem to remember one of the controversial yeah. things he says, I'm not going to look at anything from Spain because they've contributed very little to the history of art. That was one of the one of many controversial yeah. things he said. But civilizations, yeah. it's a little bit like now we we study art histories, not art history. Yeah, sure. I think that was the age of the sort of the great man theory, wasn't it? That the <laughs> You know, there were sort of heroic figures that pushed history forwards. But yeah, obviously that's been reassessed. So yeah, so civilizations, yeah. So so yeah, and, and they were all very different. I mean, David Olasega is a historian. He's not an art historian. So it was interesting to see his point of view as well. Yeah. Um, and he started in the British Museum, you know, in front of um, a lot of the... Um, uh, Benin works, you know, questioning why why these are still here in front of us now, you know. So good, good, you know, get the debate rolling right from right from the start. So, but it was a great, enjoyable program to work on. I mean, it was it was very big budget. The photography was stunning uh, of landscapes, but also of the of the works themselves. So it was absolutely beautiful. I see it no. still on. I mean, I, I'm, you know, it's not for me to to advertise the is BBC. It, is it on iPlayer? Is it on BBC? Yeah, I see it on iPlayer. Yeah. yeah. So just, listeners, yeah. listeners should look that up um, and watch yeah. a couple of them, particularly the ones that Sebastian sort of honed honed in on there. Uh, and and um, Veronica, almost at the other end of the scale in some ways. Um, you 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 became an editorial photographer, which, as you've already mentioned, in the in the United States. And um, can you say something more about the experience of photography for you and then how maybe from that you turn to an academic study of art history? Sure. So, um, as I mentioned, I, I went to America in 1998, right after about, I'd say, about three days after I finished my MAs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even though, I mean, at the time I got offered to do um, a doctorate in musicology, I was just like, ah, oh, you know, but then... You know, I'm not going to see the world. So I decided to go and I, I landed a job at the Czech embassy as a business attaché because I did have um, sort of a business experience because I worked as a sort of um, office manager for a company that was sort of putting in uh, the first or well, second mobile telephone network in Czech Republic. So you know, based on that, not really with my MAs, <laughs> they hired me. And I, you know, that was the first time I started working databases and, and companies. And, you know, so that was something then, you know, really helped me now when, you know, I started working with the AMR um, as a researcher. But anyway, I, I became embassy photographers and I also befriended photographers that uh, lived in Washington, D.C., worked on the hill, did political photography, did editorial documentary. I was assisting a lot. And then at some point, after about three and a half years at the embassy, I said, okay, I'm going to go and just be a photographer, which was really nerve wracking, but I didn't have a family. So, you know, it was okay. I had a work visa through a friend of mine who had a photo studio whom I work with. So that, that covered that. And then I went, I was a member of the National Press Photographers Association, went to sort of different conventions, conferences, went to meet editors. And um, 
And I did meet editors from the New York Times, Washington Post, and you know, lots of other publications. And, and I started getting calls. And I think the the reason why I was kind of interesting is that, well, I was, it was still very much male-dominated world. I had a different point of view, A as a female, but B as a sort of foreigner who, you know, who was in America. But still, everything was quite new. That was it was really multicultural. You know, Czech is not really, or oh, it's becoming now, but it wasn't. So, so I think it was it was that sort of happy uh, meeting of you know they wanted somebody to look at. Let's say, you know, there was a lack of teachers, so there are a lot of Filipino teachers coming to United States to teach. And I did a long story for Washington Post about how they live, how they teach. You know, what, what's their lives are like. So I was sent to photograph a lot of stories like this, you know, with lots of sort of immigrants, but also, you know, more hard hitting stories like, you know, um, soldiers coming from Afghanistan, you know, severely, you know, injured, you know, legs amputated. So I've, I've, I've met a lot of, you know, a lot of joy and a lot of misery. Um, so is, the is this me. Is this something you're looking at through the lens? Um, you, the, the, these are this is like a photojournalism that you're involved in, yes. or are you writing? Yes. Are you writing the copy as well as photographing, or only doing? I was, no, uh, so I was I was working with uh, writers. Mm. You know, when I work for the you know American publication publications, I mostly work with writers. But then I also started publishing in a Czech press, and I was writing text to go mm. along with my photograph. So. I've sort of had these two things um, going on together. I was, you know, I worked for a lot of magazines. So I did the sort of editorial sort of documentary photography, you know, um, as well. And it, But at some point I was thinking, okay, well, this is great, uh, but maybe I really want to focus on things that are meaningful to me. And one thing that really uh, interests me since I was a child is to understand what is the sort of nuclear threat or nuclear, you know, how how this sort of uh, how this nuclear culture developed. So in 2009, I went to the Trinity site, which is where the first atomic bomb was exploded in uh, 1946. And, uh, and that sort of started a 10 year project, I should say, which spans sort of documentary photography, but also very abstract and basically creating uh scientific instruments which basically took me uh to study phd and this is this is the theme i was basically exploring um so i you know i was offered to do phd at the uh one of the czech universities benefit is i don't have to pay as a czech citizen so that was that was really that was really good and i have to say that research was very tricky because there was no a framework for it. I had to sort of, you know, there was not much established a around this theme. I did manage to find a, a group which is associated with the Arts Council and the, which is a sort of nuclear culture research group, which is led by Al Carpenter, who is still teaching at the Goldsmith University, but she's got other engagements uh, in European universities. So so that helped me to do, you know, part of the research. But yeah, so uh, that's how I sort of segued from being a documentary photographer into sort of exploring themes 
much more in depth and um and that's uh yeah do, do you do you have any kind of website where listeners could view some of your work? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, so, so we can put it if you tell me after the podcast, you can put it yeah, in the yes. links because yeah. I'd really like to look at some of that myself. Yeah. It sounds really, really fascinating. Okay. And um, um, I grew up very much with the nuclear, you know, the Cold War nuclear threat we were terrified uh, i remember the cnd marches and all that mm -hmm. stuff so uh, it's quite weird actually i sometimes think um you know my son is aware of it he's very interested in cold war and politics and so on but they don't seem to have the fear that i had in my generation <laughs> um and, and and you know we really thought that this could happen and uh it seems to me that those nuclear weapons are still there <laughs> you know and we've got now what's happening in russia and ukraine you know and and yet and they were there then and yet for some reason people aren't it's not top of the agenda of what people are that worried about. You know, it's, I find that quite strange. The way the way the way the lens shifts all the time, and that the, the, yeah. probably will. Having said that, we're probably now going to have a moment when, you know, uh, yeah, some yeah. Ukrainian nuclear power station gets hit or something, and then we all realise how awful uh, this can be. And yeah. um, so, so Sebastian, coming on now to <laughs> we're actually forty five minutes into the podcast. I think I have to put a time mark on this. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be also looking forward to hearing you talk about um, the both of you talk about the art market research site um, and uh, which is what you mainly work on at the moment. I think um, you, you've already spoken about growing up in a family where your father was already interested in um, art prices. I suspect he was surrounded by sales. What was it called? The art sales index, which used to be a hard copy, then kind of went online as well. Um, but Robin Duthie, your father, he famously founded um i think it was in 1976 was it you take up the story of about amr yes so um my father robin duthie he um worked in the city actually mm. uh for a few years and decided uh to move across to the art market this was back in the 70s mm. as you said um and no one really had taken that step. And the reason that he was interested was because he was passionate about art and um, artifacts, antiquities, you know, anything. If he walked past a, uh, a gallery, he'd have to walk in and have a look and pick things up and talk about things. And uh, and so he, he cared deeply about the stories, really, uh, um, you know, of each piece and would talk forever. He used to get a bit frustrated when it came onto price. So when he said, okay, and how much is this? He sort of felt uh, that, I think he felt that there was an imbalance so that there, he, he just didn't have any information on it. It's a bit like going to a, a car dealership with a, with a car and you don't know anything about cars, you know? And so he sort of felt, well, what could I do to kind of, you know, give people an opportunity to sort of understand, you know, the history and, and how prices work. And so he embarked on his first book, which was called Alternative Investment. Um, and that book had the first indexes. So he compiled charts on prices um, and also gave an insight into the market dynamics and what drives prices, uh, something about why people love it as well. And so it was a very sort of holistic approach. And so it wasn't just about the data. It was about, you know, you know, what do we need to know really to get involved in this market and to really build the confidence really to make decisions. So he did that and then um, he uh, expanded a few years later to 
sorry, it started the alternative investment was collectibles. Um, you know, in the 1970s, that was 25 years after really the art and collectibles market started growing. You know, it reached a crescendo actually, and and people were starting to see things were very valuable. So it made sense to to write about it as well. There was a, definitely a a market who was interested. You know that. People, lots of people had attic finds back in those days. You know, there was lots of things that people never thought twice about the value. Um, and then that that was a very that was a big success. I mean, it sold in huge numbers. And then eventually he moved on to talk about uh, art and painting as well. And in 1986, uh, brought out another book, The Successful Investor, uh, and that was the first to look at paintings um, and prices um, coming from the auction houses. Uh, so, I mean, I suppose he was following in the tradition of Reitlinger in the sense that he was actually putting prices down in the book and trying to make sense of it for people, you know, take away the mystery from it. Um, so that was successful. And then uh, he developed uh, the indexes. So then uh, from taking these charts that he created in the book, then he decided to set up a business that was based around the indexes and work with the London School of Economics to develop the first indexes. Now, this was a, a brand new methodology that was uh, designed for the art market. Uh, so really was looking at the, the different kind of intricacies of the art market and how you can quantify that. And so that was launched. And then that ran for 10 years in the Daily Telegraph as the Daily Telegraph Art 100. Um, and then uh, so that was into the 90s. Um, but it was also run by the major, major broadsheets, uh, FT, um, regularly in the Lex column, you would find it. Uh, and then in 2001, the dot-com boom, um, for those of you old enough to remember, that was the first kind of when people were incredibly excited about the internet. Uh, it was still quite clunky then, you know, there was dial-up connections, things like that. But he he took the bold step of, of creating this app. So not only did he have a website, but it was a functional one so you could interact with. So you would go online, you would call up a chart and you had certain things you could do. You could uh, change the price bracket, so the, the, the interquartile range you're looking at. You could look at it uh, in different currencies, all the things that we still have today. So, I mean, he was really ahead of his time in terms of, you know, this was 20, what, 22 years ago, 2001, when this was launched. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, he was a real trailblazer in that way. And he inspired a, quite a few other people since, really, in the second wave around that time to come from the city uh, to the art market and to start to think seriously about, you know, art, the, the metrics of, you know, that can be had out of prices. Um, so, I mean, he was a real pioneer in, in, in you know, in ensuring people really take this seriously and, and realising that we, we need to sort of, look at prices in the whole, in the round, mm -hmm. um, you know. So, so yeah, so that was it. And then, uh, so then uh, that uh, was very popular. Uh, he built up a, a, a big client base. Uh, and then in 2015, I took over the business. Um, and so I've been involved, deeply involved in it since then. So, um, you know, that's what I spend my time doing now. And I, I realized that, you know, I mean, we had worked together, actually. I Many years ago, we had worked, I had done a TV pilot for him when he was looking to expand into doing a sort of TV version of it. So I was very, you know, closely entwined with what was happening. Um, 
and you know that was always our discussion and then so eventually it sort of made sense for me to to come on board and then yes as i say i took over in 2015. yeah and that, that whole history of um it's um i often say to prospective students at interview when they say what is this course really about i say it's really about the relationship i've had to choose one thing it's about the relationship between cultural and financial value some people call call it symbolic and financial value um, and and quite often um i've taken students down to uh say sotheby's preview and i've i've hidden the label with the estimate on and i've said to them look any of you who've worked in the art market i don't want to answer but any of you are coming from pure art history how much how much would you pay for this work and at first people are widely wrong but the more you do this the more you begin to develop an instinct and i guess what your dad was doing and what you're doing now is you're you're quantifying that more we've got a lot of that data and we we understand therefore um more about that relationship what something is likely to to be worth i think I think the uh, the the really the thing that makes still makes it very interesting um, is is watching auctions <laughs> because I I do this thing Anders Pettersson who is an example I think of someone who might well have been inspired by your dad to to leave I think he was with Bloomberg um, uh, and 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 left the city and came into the art market with Art Tatter he's been a guest on the podcast earlier um, he. He um he runs this game called Art Forecaster. So you have to for he takes like eight to ten works from different auctions, and um you you have to choose which price band the eventual price is going to fall in, and it's a competition. There's a league. Um, and I was watching it yesterday, and as an example to our listeners, this was an eight. This was a modern and contemporary Asian art sale at Christie's, I think it was. Before Christmas, I'd looked at all the indices and prices. Um, to, to 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 estimate what the eventual price is going to be. I thought these are all totally undervalued. You know, they're all going to go for way above. So I was doing the maximum amount all the time. I, I got like zero points. I was totally wrong. And then yesterday I was much more cautious and it went the other way. <laughs> so I ended up getting 1.5 out of eight correct, but then no one else got them correct either. So that I think that's an example of how you just there are externalities involved that that maybe these people who are collecting or buying Asian art, something must have happened. It was I know I remember it was during Diwali, so I thought that it would be even better. But maybe what was happening is people weren't thinking about buying art because it was Diwali, whereas yesterday they were all up for it. Um so so that's what's so it's really interesting tension between this data that you can't argue with, which is because the auction prices are all published um, that your dad used and you, you're, you're still using. Um, and, and yet there's always this anomaly of you can never quite work out what's going to happen in the auction. But you can, you can. I remember Ernst Gombrich in his fantastic book Art and Illusion, as opposed to the more famous story of art. I remember he once said art history is about narrowing the areas of misunderstanding and I, I think you knowing how to use like your database and other art price index databases, it's a way, it's one of the tools we use to say, well, let's try and rationalize this as much as possible. And then if there is an anomaly, we might be able to think about why that might be. It might be some externality, the collapse of the Lehman brothers on the morning of the Damien Hurst beautiful inside my head forever sale didn't seem to have an effect on people spending money. But anyway, going forward from that, do you want to say a little bit more? Maybe both of you could talk about this about about since you took over um and both of you were already working for a 
AMR for, for Robin at that point, but since you took over, what new developments have you made on the site? I, I, shall I say? Yeah. <laughs> Either. Okay. And then um, Veronica, I'm going to ask Veronica more about her her interest in AI and emerging technologies as well. So whatever. But if maybe yeah, so, maybe more about what's happened in the recent years. Well, so when I took over, I mean, we, we spent some time um, making the website much more interactive. So it's much easier to use. It's sort of got more of a haptic feel. Uh, the I, you know, beforehand, you would have to load in exactly which artist and which price bracket, and and then the, it would come up on screen. And and we realised that actually, with with charts, what you need to do is you need to see the chart. You need to um, make your adjustments, look at different price brackets, different currencies, and you start to, as you start to move and see them change, you start to build a relationship with that chart in the sense of. Of, of, of building confidence. And this is something I will go back to over and over again. You know, art market metrics, it's all about your relationship in terms of feeling confident about what you're looking at. Um, Actually, Sebastian, what... sorry sorry to interrupt. Do you have a, a screen you could share to show this or, you know, to show, uh, yeah, to yeah. show listeners? Because I'm aware that this is a subscription database. You can go to the site and have a look at quite a lot. But I don't know whether you want to. Yeah, we'd let, oh, you let's share the screen and you can talk to it. Can log on. You want to log on? Yeah, if you want to log on. And it's a very different looking. It's a very different graphic from what it used to be with your dad, where it was more, I think, of a linear thing. And now you've got all this kind of, you know, rather quite aesthetic sort of looking graphs. <laughs> okay, so we're just getting it up so we can sure. we can no show um, show how this happens. Yeah, so, so yeah, so going back to one of the things you said about the anomalies, in fact, any statistician will tell you that as soon as you see a, a huge swing or a big change in a chart, that's the point at which you, you have to go back and start to understand exactly what observation is ca causing that. And so it's a great way of immediately having a, a broad picture of, of what's been happening to a certain artist or group of artists mm -hmm. and immediately trying to understand about the important events. Um, so can you, can you see the screen now? Yeah, you might. Yeah. Have you opened up a new have you opened up a new window? Because you'd have to stop sharing and then open, then go back and open the new window. Oh, yeah. Sorry. OK, yeah. I think this is a power that was a PowerPoint probably we were looking at. Yeah, right. So if you if you share screen again and find the window with the live site. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, so this is the the, the web page here. We've already gone into so you would have had a uh, a web page, uh, sorry, a website uh, landing page, and then you can actually get to your account once you have a subscription here, and then you create an index. And so this is the app. Uh, where you can create thousands of, I can call up thousands of different indexes. So uh, I can either browse from a list of indexes. Uh, we carry not just art, but we carry uh, antiques, um, collectibles, furniture, jewelry, uh, watches, cars, you know, a huge range. Mm -hmm. um, so if you know what you're looking for, you can browse for it or you can uh, search. So uh, a common search is uh, Andy Warhol. We have uh, Andy Warhol for his paintings or his printmaking. Mm. Uh, let's 
take a look at his paintings. So this is a chart uh, looking at um, Andy Warhol paintings sold at auctions since 1975. Um, so I should say at this point that, uh, I, you know, we can come on to methodologies in more in more detail, but I think the important thing to know is, is that there are different index providers. Uh, we are one, um, but we stand out, as I said earlier, as having a, a methodology that was built direct, uh, specifically for the art market. And one of our main beliefs is, is, is that we, we once you gather the prices, you you're basically you want to present those prices to our customers. So we don't want to do any adjustments or anything, uh, you know, any kind of uh, modeling of, of, of the prices. Because we believe that, I mean, like you say, the best thing is to go to an auction. If you go to an auction, yeah. you will see people sitting in the room, taking notes, writing down prices. Those on the whole will be dealers. Um, and so, you know, that's what our clients like is, is that basically that's what they're getting. They're getting effectively being in the room, uh, but obviously not just in one room, but in all the key rooms at all the major auction and sales around the world. Uh, every month and so that is what you are looking at so if you were able to do that and you make a note of Andy Warhol prices that's what you would see um, I think Andy Warhol is quite an interesting one because obviously you know the, the media noise around Andy Warhol is, is that his his uh, his values just keep going up and up and up um, and actually we've seen that uh, you know he reached a high back in 2016 um, and then we start to see him go up here. Well, if I look closer, I can see that the, the chart's starting to move up in around uh, May, which was the uh, Marilyn shot sage blue last year. Uh, I think it was what well, was the most expensive painting last year, uh, mm -hmm. one of the most expensive ever. Uh, and so, so that we can start to see why the index is going up. That will certainly would have had a big impact on the index. So if I go up, I can look at the central 80% and I could look at central 50%. So that's taking off some of the outliers. And we can already start to see that the, the individual piece, really, the extraordinary outlier that is Marilyn Shot Sage Blue might have had on the index. So that's just an example of, you know, of, of, of now, you know, because I'm actually... You know, the fact that I'm actually doing this, you know, makes me think more carefully about what I'm really looking for. And so it was this belief really was that is to try and engage people with art market metrics. And so not only is it there immediately and I can make changes straight away, but I can also start to to build my own confidence around what I'm seeing. Um, so, yeah, so that was this was the what we did first. Uh, really was to to really yes turn it into more of an experience for our customers. Uh, since then we've um, you know we've got a broad range of things that we're working with. So we uh, produced in 2020 we pre produced a, a report on um, handbags, uh, which was the uh, very kind of popular. Uh, when it came out, you know, it was all the talk. Everyone wanted to write about luxury handbags, and obviously, we were really well placed to uh, to look at prices. You know, having the experience of the um, of, of how to quantify, you know, a market like this, um, but also because Christie's uh, had taken it on um, 
you know, as as some as a category that they were really fully invested in. And you know, we track the top auction houses, so it made it possible for us to to think about it in in those terms as well. So, so yeah, so we we uh, launched this. This was very successful. Uh, a lot of interest around this, and we still currently um, update prices on our handbag index. Um, and then last year we moved on to uh, Rolex. So we looked at Rolex. That was another sector of the market that has, has been booming for quite a while, actually. So we looked in detail at uh, a thousand individual Rolex prices, um, and uh, yeah, so so that's a, a detailed look at, and also to create a new index as well. So it was really a report uh, analyzing, you know, the whole market. So you're looking at not just a price index, but you're looking at the size of the market, the key players, average spend, things like that. So it's a it's a really broad picture. Um, also, of course, because our business goes back a long way, that and my father used to write about watches and and uh, all sorts because he was a journalist as well. So he would write for uh, lots of different um, publications, from FT to the Connoisseur. You know, there's there's fabulous archive from from his time and what it was like back then in the 70s and 80s at auction. So it's always nice to be able to to bring that in as well so that you can start to see something of the historic, historical context, which I think is very much part of, of, of how we see ourselves. Again, we, we, you know. We've been looking at, um, you, you're looking at like luxury handbook bags and Rolex watches and your, your choice of Andy Warhol um, as an artist you were showing. Um, but one of the, one of the reasons why why our program subscribes to your database is because one of the things one of the really interesting things it does, which art price tends to art price, which is another of these indices, and you, we might talk a little bit about their methodology. Um, they will occasionally um, sh show an index for say impressionist and modern. But what is really good about AMR is that you can actually create and you will tailor mate indices. I, I remember I, I once asked you to do one for St. Ives artists for me um, or emerging women artists and that sort of thing. So you're also getting sectors. You can actually look at indexes for sectors, not just for individual artists. As I understand it, art price, because I use that as well, it, it tends to be they will do individual artists. Their data only goes back to 2000, whereas yours goes back to the 70s because of the work your dad had done. So there, there are differences in between these databases, um, Veronica and Sebastian. But maybe you could um, talk about the difference between your methodology and say that of art price. Can I show that other uh, which one? So, um, this one. Do you want to show this? Uh, no. Well, let me just. I'll, I'll, I'll get on to, to yeah. the methodologies. Um, yeah. Well, you've mentioned art price. Uh, they have an index. Uh, they have one called the. Yes, we can put it up. Actually, I see what you're saying. Sorry. We'll share the screen. I've got a slide sure. that actually compares our indexes, which actually I thought was um, uh, the bottom one here. So yeah. I put together uh, really a comparison with um, Artnet and Art Price. Now, the Art Price 100, as I understand it, that's their kind of blue chip index. Yes. Um, and then Artnet Fine Art, uh, that I believe is contemporary uh, modern impressionists grouped together, but don't quote me on that. But anyway, it is their kind of their definitive index, the tracking the kind of the 
you know, most valuable end of the market. Um, mm. The AMR All Art, this is ours. So this was something we also uh, introduced uh, back in 2019, uh, which really is, a, it's, it's kind of a survey of our database, actually. So uh, this index thinks in terms of sampling, um, you know, the auction houses rather than the individual artists. Um, and I can come on to why that is. Um, but, you know, effectively, you know, all of these indexes are trying to look at the top end of the art market um, in global terms. Um, and so I think that actually the I've highlighted the key lockdown period here because I think that actually it's quite telling of the different methodologies. So what's happened in, uh, in the lockdown um, in spring 2020, um, as everyone started to realize that, you know, draconian measures would need to be taken to deal with this uh, virus. You know, everyone, you know, closed shop. Uh, we were waiting to hear what was happening in terms of when people could open up again. Um, actually, auction businesses were, were some of the best place to deal with, with some of this because of the investment they'd already done online and live stream auctions. Uh, nevertheless, it, it, you know, you know, if you look at the number of lots sold, uh, the, lot, the lots sold went down considerably uh, in that period. So although they, the auction houses moved a lot of sales online, uh, they weren't actually selling nearly as much as they had in previous years or to the same value. And one of the reasons is, is that, um, you know, people certainly with, with bigger ticket works were, were, you know, waiting for better times. I mean, this is something that people always do in the auction business. I mean, you don't, unless you have to, you wouldn't sell your work of art unless you felt that it was a very good time to sell it. Um, and so this was obviously a time to sort of, to hold back, you know, certainly when you're dealing with very valuable uh, artworks or, or whether it's gems or watches, you know, you need to be face-to-face -face with advisors. You need to be, um, you know, showing it to people who might be interested, you know, and you can't do that. For the bigger ticket items and so that's what we saw we certainly saw that the top ends really come to a, a, a big slowdown around that period and you can see that reflected in our index so um as i said earlier you know we are basically in the room so we what you're seeing there is you're seeing that the average values of artwork going through the the the, the doors of the auction houses has has, has gone down um, and we can understand exactly why for the reasons I said. Well, now you look in comparison to ArtPrice and ArtNet, um, they, analysts, they wouldn't disagree with what I've said. They know as well as I do that, that the number of big ticket works went down and yet their indexes keep going up. Now, the reason is, is because they employ uh, a methodology, um, again, don't quote me, but as I understand it, uh, they use what's called hedonic regression. So uh, you'll know this, David, but to try and keep this simple. Um, no, I mean, it's fine on that, actually. Okay. I'd stick it. Okay. Yeah, okay, we can do that. I had some slides earlier here. So hedonic regression is... Hedonic regression, it, it, it tries to imagine uh, what would a world be like where all the artworks by Damien Hirst, for example, were the same. Because if they were the same, that would be great because then you could track like for like, apples for apples, and you would have, uh, you know, you would have a for shots. 
just just for the benefit for the benefit of people only listening not not looking at the youtube video there's a, a great image did you did you paint this sebastian uh, yes, that's correct. Yes, it's yes. fantastic. So it's got the shark of formaldehyde by Hearst and uh, a, a, a picture of Damien Hearst with one of his woolly hats on. Uh, and basically the subject matter is the shark of formaldehyde and Damien Hearst has got an arrow with reputation on it. And this, this is to illustrate this thing that Sebastian's explaining, hedonic regression. So carry on. <laughs> yeah, so each artwork has specific characteristics. So, for example, the, the shark was a huge work. You know, the size of the piece is important. Yeah. People care about size. Uh, subject matter that's important perhaps uh, shark is slightly alarming uh, um, and that could be good for some people bad for others but again these are factors that people think are important that uh, that um, that apply you know contribute to to why something sells for a certain amount of money and so then the idea of hedonic regression is, is then to to kind of strip away these these kind of special characteristics uh, until you come to a sort of hopefully equilibrium price between different works. In fact, they call it characteristic free. So you're sort of denuding it of its specialness. Uh, and then once you've done that for all those artworks, you're then uh, you're constructing indexes, uh, you know, with prices of these different, you know, um, these different characteristic free prices. So literally what's happening is, is the, price, the hammer price is actually being adjusted according to these criteria. Now this in this methodology actually came from the housing market, um, and it was also used in the car market. So it's it's a it's a much older uh, methodology than ours, um, and people used it for the art market because they felt that it was analogous. Well, as I explained earlier, my father, when he went into it, looked at it carefully and felt that that wasn't helpful. So if we go back to the uh, if we go back to the chart, so to explain the chart. Um, we're looking at the all art compared with the art price 100 and the art net fine art. Clearly, you can see a dip uh, around the lockdown period in the all art, but not in the other two. And so the reason is, as I've explained, because you are not actually looking uh, at what's being sold on the market, but trying to sort of triangulate into a value, you end up you know, with an index uh, that's tracking the market, but it's not tracking market sentiment in the way that we do. Um, and in fact, there are papers on this, um, you know, where they go into quite detail about the characteristic free and also the, the, the way that, you know, one of the drawbacks of this methodology is, is that you are divorcing the, you know, your, your metrics from the actual market sentiment. Um, so I, I think that's probably the, the, the nicest way I can illustrate it, actually, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about uh, in, in the industry about correlation. And there's a sort of general belief that the art market does not correlate with the uh, with the other financial markets. And obviously this is a, you know, this would be a very nice scenario because it <laughs> means obviously that it's worth investing in art when things are, are going belly up elsewhere. And, and you know, we would argue that 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 I haven't really seen this lack of or low correlation. In fact, we've certainly seen events where there is definitely a correlation uh, with the financial markets and the world around us. And perhaps we should think more in terms of, you know, lead times or the different lag times and uh, uh, between the two, really, to try and understand the relationship. Um, say, so just, I mean, just if you could maybe go back to that 
previous slide where you're just to talk about your methodology about repeat sales because I don't think we've really explained that. So you've got the yeah, so repeat sales. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So repeat sales. That's that's um, uh, famously was used by a index called May Moses, which was bought by mm -hmm. Sotheby's several mm -hmm. years ago. Um, again, this is different to ours. This is the this is the perhaps the third um, you know sort of um, you know methodology that people are accustomed to or, or mm -hmm. certainly would have encountered in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really like for like sales. So this is actually yeah. tracking exactly the same artwork that sold more than once. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that really is ideal in one sense that you know that you are tracking exactly the same work and it's you're comparing apples with apples. The drawback with that is, is that it's there aren't that many what they're called pairs of sales to track. And so therefore, mm -hmm. Uh, any statistician will tell you that the more observations, the the more robust the the the, the data. Uh, sorry, the the statistical analysis. And and the, the, sorry, the, what I was going to say is the other problem with that, in my experience, is that you know someone buys, say, this. We're, we're looking at um, Sebastian's drawings of two Marilyns by Warhol. Uh, and basically what he's saying is that one is sold at auction, say, in 2015, then it comes up for sale like last month. And you, you're you looking at the difference in price. It could go up or down, maybe allowing for inflation. Another problem there, Sebastian, as you know, is that, you know, why was that person reselling it? And a lot uh, there, there's a lot of sentiment that when something is if something is resold too quickly, it often is bought. It often fails to sell because it doesn't make it very sexy you know why is this person getting rid of something that they've only just bought there's that it, people can often it doesn't always work like that and we know that a lot of people just need liquidity and people will then see it as a bargain but you know there's all sorts of externalities that can affect that repeat sales so could you talk about what amr uses yeah so to to so our methodology as i say the best way to think about it is if you were um, so this is our all art index. So this is yeah. tracking the market here since uh, 2007. Um, and we collect data from the top auction houses, the top 22 auction houses and the major auction centers. And we use that data to construct um, our charts. And we we apply uh, what's called a moving average. So that's the one of the most basic statistical um, uh methodologies you can apply to a set of observations and really what all it's doing is is it's trying to identify the signal and take away some of the noise what's called noise perhaps outliers things are that you know to try and understand the trend so you know our index is really is looking at what's actually happening the behavior of collectors in the market uh, mm -hmm. around certain artists um and ours are ours are uh, particularly excellent for looking over long-term Horizons. I think if you saw the uh, Warhol Warhol index that I brought up, that it, it was recently spiky. That index mm -hmm. um, certainly that's interesting from one perspective. You know, what do those spikes mean? You could look in more detail to try and identify uh, what those sales were, but also you could look at the kind of the trend over a long period, so that if you were to draw a trend line, um, you know, or, or a um, uh, exponential trend line, you would start to get a sense of the trajectory. So in that uh, of growth um, or decline of the artist. And in those terms, really, you're looking at the at the um, at the y axis uh, on the left, and you're 
thinking in terms of how much it's gone up over a period or how much it's gone down over a period. Um, and you're confident that really what you're looking at is to what's been going through the, the sale weeks. Uh, again, no prices are adjusted. And so that's why our clients um, are people often um, art market professionals who, who can't, you know, don't have the time to go and sit in the auction rooms and they know what they're looking at and they know that they're getting, you know, verbatim what's happening. Um, so, so that's how we, we are different because we're the only um, people that do that. We also, we don't make any money from any ancillary services. So if you look at, say, Art Price and ArtNet, they have auction sites. Uh, I, I don't know their revenue model, but I know that ours, we don't gain any revenue from sales of art. And so <laughs> we're able to, to maintain our independence in that way. And so we have no interest one way or the other. We, we are just interested in tracking the market as it changes. It's really, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, for for, for people who are only listening to the podcast this all art index i think it's um i think it's beginning probably um is that in 2000 2008 so so it's starting but so the art market collapses in 2009 but it doesn't last very uh, no, long well, 2000, well this actually is showing 2007 actually the date 2007 the, okay so 2007, 2007. yep yeah. yeah. But it actually goes back to uh, we do this is what we publish on the website from 2007. But yep. um, the data is available to buy all the way back to 1978. Yep, um, yeah, yeah. We are actually so this is the all art. So as I say, this is all the works of art that we mm -hmm. track. So mm -hmm. it's really the best picture of of global sales. Mm. Um, but actually, uh, we're just about to launch uh, a new index uh, called Top Traded, which is just looking at the most liquid sector of the market. Mm -hmm. Now, that's important because what you're seeing with the All Art also contains some extremely rare works of art. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Botticelli recently or, um, you know, you could name, you know, or the Surah last year that, that mm -hmm. sold for... Um, uh, over a hundred million dollars, you know, that's probably the only Surah that's out of a, an institution and probably is the last time a Surah of that quality will ever come on the market. Mm -hmm. uh, and so inevitably you can see on the right, if, if you have the screen, you can see how the art market has recovered uh, after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's very much thanks to some of these extraordinary works. And so we also want to be able to look at the market without those works as well. So we're tracking the really the, the the market that has, you know, the familiar names from Picasso to Warhol to, to Miro to uh, Chagall, you know, the, you know, artists who um, were prolific in their lifetime. There's um, a lot of works out there. There's a lot of uh, data around those sales, which gives people confidence in entering the market, buying something that they've got some, a good price history for. And those are the kind of, uh, the more liquid sector, those are the things that trade regularly. Uh, and so we, we're about to launch that as well. Uh, and that shows uh, a different picture to what you're seeing here. And I think illustrates that, uh, you know, there's different ways to think about the art market. I mean, auction houses want you to, to look at it one way, which is there are, you know, fabulous sales that hit the headlines. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the business of auction houses is bringing together buyers and sellers and trying to get as much as they can for the for the seller and um you know and so and so it, it's not easy selling art so it can't just be a simple story of 
of Suraz selling for wonderful prices, and and indeed it's not. So, so you know, so one index is never really going to give you a full picture of the market. Mm -hmm. um, would so would yes, I be? Would I be right in saying that looking at this, therefore, this index, that if it starts at 2007, it's I think you said that your index arguably um, uh, reflects sentiment more than the others do. So the argument here would be that we're starting in 2007 when the art market was nearly at its height from the new millennium. It had been building up, hadn't it? And contemporary art sales have been doing amazingly. And then in 2008, um, I think the Damien Hirst is often seen as the the, the final success. I, I remember the summer of 2008 was amazing. Things were just in all sectors were doing were kind of at their height. But this this suggests that the sentiment, it, it, it doesn't suddenly dive down after 2007. It keeps growing um, in the early well, years. Yes, I mean, there is, the there is a dip there. And actually, when you do the analysis, actually, what was interesting is you know, from a from an Asian perspective, they they often describe it as a Western financial crisis. I mean, I know mm -hmm. they were impacted, and I know that they had mm -hmm. the same quantitative easing and things like that. And in fact, some of the some of the money that the Chinese government pumped into China, I think, you know, plays a role in this because mm -hmm. uh, you know auction houses, the major ones, had been in Hong Kong for you know since the eighties, I think, or even earlier, and so they've been there a long time and had built relationships and and really this was an opportunity now to start to to really work on those relationships and i think there was a lot of uh there was a lot of um chinese antiquities and um and paintings that perhaps were in the western part of the world that they were taken back and they were sold to the chinese market uh at the same time chinese buyers were quite interested in you know, iconic artists of the 20th century, just as Basquiat, Warhol and Picasso are to us. They, in China, there's there were artists, there are artists of the 20th century, it's very important, that were uh, undervalued for a very long time. And they were starting to realize the, the value of prices there. And so, because this is a global picture, you're seeing, you know, that auction houses really is one way to look at, at it is they are very, very good at adapting. And because of their global footprint, they're able to to shift and change and, and, and adapt very quickly. And I, I mentioned before, they were very quick to adapt to the problems of the of the lockdown. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that sense, yes, you know, there, there was a certainly if you look at the 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 more liquid sector of the market, there was quite a big fall, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, of the kind of the day-to-day -day sales. And again, mm -hmm. that's uh, uh, something you would expect to see. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, you know, really, and so you'll see um, soon on our website uh, in the next couple of weeks, you'll see the new All Art with the new All Art Top Traded. And it's a family of indexes. So you'll be able to put them next to each other uh, mm -hmm. and really sort of interrogate what's, what you know, what's happening with the two, two different indexes and, and start to build a, a, a picture and understanding of, you know, what's been happening. Mm -hmm. um, if you could stop sharing the screen at this point. Mm -hmm. um, what I was going to say is I'm, I'm very aware that we, we've, we've, this, we've, we're now nearly at the 90 minute mark. I, I wanted to speak with Veronica about her more of her interests and her more recent interests. I know she's very interested in, in AI, um, artificial intelligence and its relationship with art and, and so on. But I, may I suggest that for our sakes and for listeners' sakes that we, we maybe find another date where Veronica can come on and maybe we can talk about 
AI and NFTs, that sort of stuff. I think that would be good. So apologies for, for maybe you've been waiting for that to happen, but I think it's probably more sensible. Do you agree to that we'll do this as another podcast? Someplace? I think it's a good idea because Veronica knows so much about it. It's got fascinating <laughs> insights and it's something you could really just spend time on. I mean, yeah, no, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm aware that you know Sebastian is the main. He's the one that's grown up with his dad, developing this index and so on. So obviously his voice was 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 um, going to be heard more um, while we were talking about AMR. But um, I'm sure that if we do another one with Veronica, that she might have more to say about AMR from her viewpoint as well. So it remains for me to yeah yeah we'll do that. I'll, I'll find a date you know sometime in the future where we can do that. Um, and um, so it just remains for me to thank you both very much, Veronica and Sebastian, for, for being guests today and to, for speaking about this really interesting subject about how you can, how you can quantify the un unquantifiable, <laughs> if you like. Um, so thank you very much and um, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much.